Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 55, the 1919 Bible Conference, part 2. Last time, we talked about how Adventists were searching for answers in the post-Ellen White world. With so many questions out there about Ellen White and current events and the implication of those current events and Bible prophecy, church leaders called upon Bible and history teachers to attend the conference in 1919 for a little conversation. The general conference set the agenda for that conversation. The conference itself was scheduled to last for about five weeks and would be packed with presentations on covenantal theology, the Eastern Question, Revelation 13, Matthew 24, the United States in Prophecy, the 1260-day Prophecy, <gasps> the Person and Work of Jesus, the Nature of the Holy Spirit, the Seven Trumpets, and, of course, how to best understand the inspiration of Ellen White. All of those topics can basically be boiled down into three areas of study. Prophecy inspiration, and the nature of God, topics which Daniels called the fundamentals. Now, the guest list for this meeting was limited to editors, Bible teachers, and members of the General Conference Committee. Note that I didn't say pastors, because in the past, if there was a theological concern, if there was something that needed to be sorted out and debated in the Bible, then pastors would have come together and meet like they did in 1888. But finally, in 1919, we have a highly trained teaching corps in the church. Michael Campbell wrote that these attendees at the 1919 Bible Conference, quote, represented the best trained group of Adventist leaders and educators ever officially convened, end quote. Maybe 10 to 15 percent of the attendees knew the biblical languages. Others knew Latin or German or French. Three of the attendees had PhDs, the first ever in this denomination. Campbell calls this the first scholarly conference in Adventist history, and three of the attendees were female. Never before had such a group of well-trained Adventists been assembled. And so Daniels had high hopes for this conference. Though that didn't stop him from gently urging the attendees to, quote, exercise care and good judgment, and be careful of the reports they sent out, end quote. In other words, Daniels was very aware from the start that the issues about to be discussed were explosive, and if one of the delegates leaked too much to the Adventist public, the firestorm it could create would be huge. Daniels also told the attendees that, quote, a good many people feel very much afraid of what we are going to do. They are much disturbed by it. The secrecy alarms them, end quote. Now, some urged Daniels to cancel the meeting because so many people were suspicious of it months before it ever happened. But Daniels ignored them. He believed that so much good would come of this meeting that the doubters out there would become convinced. I think we have enough pieces to put together the deeper issue that Daniels is wrestling with, the growing trust gap between church leaders and church members. To open the conference, Daniels read a few paragraphs from Ellen White to the effect 
that God's people should always keep growing in grace. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's well known, but it's really, really long. So I just want to read this key line for me in what Daniel's presented. Okay, so quoting Ellen White here, Daniel's reads to the delegate this statement, quote, As real spiritual life declines, it has ever been the tendency to cease to advance in the knowledge of the truth. Men rest satisfied with the light already received from God's word and discourage any further investigation of the scriptures. They become conservative and seek to avoid discussion, end quote. It was a choice quote to set the tone for the conference, and it sounds very much like something Daniels probably wishes he could just tell the entire church. Daniels considered the church to be in a crisis. In fact, some of the first words Daniels spoke to the conference were about this crisis. He said very simply, quote, I think we ought to recognize that we have come to a crisis, end quote. And the transcript reads that several people said amen to that. But what kind of crisis are we talking about? Why was there a gap of trust between leaders and many of the members? Why, as we talked about in the last episode, did Claude Holmes con his way into the General Conference vault to steal some Ellen White manuscripts, which he believed the leaders were trying to suppress? Why did he or those with him used those manuscripts, many of which were deeply personal letters, to embarrass people like Daniels. How did we get to this point where somebody, where an Adventist would think that this is a good idea, this is what I need to do to save my church? Of course, it didn't help that Daniels' conference was easy to hate if you were inclined to be suspicious. I mean, it, it fit neatly within the framework that the war between the fundamentalists and the liberals had provided. I mean, weren't the, weren't the liberals, in this case, those mighty learned German professors? Isn't, isn't that how that started out? Didn't they deploy a fantastic knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, which they used, in the opinion of conservative Christians, to undermine confidence in the word of God. And yet here, in 1919, Adventists had assembled their smartest cookies who had a proficiency in biblical languages, and they had done it in secret. Okay, well, Daniel's called it a secret meeting in that quote above, but the, the meeting wasn't a secret. It was, it was announced. No attendee was forbidden to talk about it. But that's the impression many people on the outside had. It was just too easy to pass off the 1919 Bible conference as liberalism finally entering, finally slipping into the church in this secret conclave. What's more, this reliance upon an increasingly educated section of the church, people with PhDs and master's degrees and who knew Greek and Hebrew and Latin, also widened the gap between members and a growing elite. Whereas all the pastors might be gathered to help answer these questions, as in 1888, now we only want some of you, especially those who have been educated at non-Avenist universities for your higher degrees, which Avenist universities didn't offer. But all of that still doesn't answer the question as to how we got to this point. Well, look, we've been nibbling around the edges of this for the past five episodes. It was a concert of causes, both external and internal which brought Adventism to this moment of crisis. 
Adventism had been partially uprooted in a changing landscape, and that sense of nakedness and vulnerability led to two courses of actions. I mean, some dug into the soil more deeply, and others embraced the new world and looked for a new place to be replanted. Maybe that's not the best metaphor, but hopefully you understand. To be uprooted like this is a profoundly uncomfortable thing. Some of you have maybe gone through your own uprooting, maybe a painful career change, or your own crisis of faith. Perhaps I could say that with church leaders and many members tugging in different directions, it became difficult for the church to go anywhere. It was certainly an identity crisis. I mean, many of these old prophecies that had stood as beautiful landmarks, as pillars of Adventist identity, now they were kind of eroding. Trust in them was eroding. We mentioned with the Eastern question how many old Adventists had expected this to be the moment Daniel 11 is fulfilled, Turkey is going to invade and conquer Jerusalem, and then that didn't happen. And so that just that leads to this atmosphere of, well, that didn't pan out the way we thought it would. What else isn't going to pan out the way we thought it would? I mean, have we been wrong in interpreting some of these things? And so it, it, there's this unraveling. Threads are being tugged. Loose threads are being tugged. And it contributes to this sense of, of crisis. Who are we in, in the 20th century as a, as a people? How many of our beliefs are going to need to be modified or changed or, or something in order to make them viable, in order to make them intelligible in this new world that is being created all around us? Anyway, so, so, so church leaders are tugging in one direction and many members are tugging in a different direction and it became difficult for the church to go anywhere. The Adventists in the middle, so to speak, were kind of the tiebreakers in deciding which way Adventism would go. So perhaps Daniels looked at the 1919 Bible Conference as a means of persuading the Adventists in the middle to come over to his side. All right. Anyways, we've, we've talked enough about the conference. So let's step inside and listen in on some of their conversations. First stop, the discussion on Bible translations. An attendee named H.C. Lacey praised the Rotherham version of the Bible, leading Prescott to ask whether that Rotherham version should be, in his words, quote, a basis of authoritative public teaching, end quote. Lacey turned sharply to Prescott and said, quote, no translation is infallible, end quote. The reason Bible translations were controversial in the early 1900s is that new translations were often based on Westcott and Hort's New Greek New Testament. Westcott and Hort were seen as villains by many fundamentalists because their Greek text was missing words and verses. Westcott and Hort said those missing verses weren't even in the oldest manuscripts, that they must have been added later. But that didn't stop the more conspiracy-minded fundamentalists from smelling a uh, conspiracy to undermine the Bible. Curiously, A.T. Jones advertised a lexicon based on Westcott and Hort's Greek New Testament throughout the 1890s. In fact, in 1882, less than a year after Westcott and Hort's Greek text was published, the review ran an article recommending it over the received text, the Textus Receptus, which was the basis for the King James Version. Still, it was significant that Lacey could calmly commend the Rotherham translation. Why? Because the Rotherham translation was based on Westcott and Hort's text. 
William Worth, another attendee in 1919, asked about what we should do when we have a conflict between the King James Version and the Revised Version. The Revised Version being an attempt to update the King James Version. Well, I mean, it was an attempt. They did update the King James Version, but the King James Version, as in many other cases, has outlived it. Anyway, what Worth meant by that question was, what did it mean when Ellen White chose one Bible translation in this spot and another Bible translation in that spot? I mean, these are translations that sometimes say different things in the same verse. When Ellen White does that, does that seem to indicate that the translation she chose was the right one, the, the perfect one, that that's how all Adventists should now be reading and translating that verse? Well, Daniels was quick to answer that question, that Ellen White used whatever version she thought best to fit her point. It wasn't until 1930, this may surprise some of you, it wasn't until 1930 that Ben Wilkinson, one of the conservative attendees of the conference, published a book claiming the King James Version is the purest translation. I don't want to get off track here and down that rabbit hole, but I do want to note two things about that. First, that Wilkinson's book was an inspiration in the King James-only movement, that movement that rejects modern textual criticism, modern translations, all of that. As with creationism and George McCready Price, so Wilkinson, an Adventist, helped lead a certain strain of fundamentalists in this area. Second, we should note that this controversy over Bible translations didn't exist in Ellen White's time. This King James-only thing came much later and owes much more to certain fundamentalists than to Adventism. Case in point here, the church refused to publish Wilkinson's book. In fact, there was a swift response in the church against Wilkinson's book shortly after it was published. Also, many fundamentalist leaders wanted no part of this King James-only business either and made that very, very clear. So what does that leave us with Bible translations? Well, Adventists have always remained open to new translations of the Bible, although, of course, uh, the culture of Adventism remains fairly conservative, and, and many, many people even to this day are using probably New King James versions uh, here in America in their churches. But, but Adventists historically have never really had a dog in this race, so to speak. We've never really had a, a bone to pick or whatever. You have had people who have agitated on this issue, who raise a conversation about this issue, but this was not a controversy in the earliest days. This was something that seems to be inspired more by fundamentalism than by Ellen White. Next up on the tour is the Trinity. With Prescott's presentations on the nature of Christ, which were being made just about every day, it was inevitable that the Trinity would pop up. Now, I really, really don't want to step into this pile of controversy, which is still hotly contested in certain corners of the Adventist church. This controversy exists because, unlike the Bible translation issue, it is rooted in the earliest days of the movement. James White and Joseph Bates, they all came into Adventism from non-Trinitarian Christian traditions. They carried those ideas with them. Curiously, when the Review published a list of what we could call the 15 fundamental beliefs which Adventists believed in, the first one read, Seventh-day Adventists believe in the divine trinity. That was in 1913. In 1919, those 15 were expanded to 22 and called fundamental principles. And yep, the trinity one remained in that one word for word. 
as maybe evidence that Adventists were evolving and growing a little bit less afraid of that word, depending on how you defined it. Prescott's morning sermons provoked a discussion on the topic on a number of occasions, and probably by his design, and that gave him the opportunity to complain that for 40 years the church had been publishing a book saying that Jesus was not co-eternal with the Father. That, said Prescott, is Arianism, an early church heresy. And he said, quote, do we want to go on teaching that? End quote. The book Prescott was referring to was probably Uriah Smith's Daniel and the Revelation. Smith's book was the book on Bible prophecy, as we've said a few times on this podcast. But more than that, it had come to represent early Adventism as a whole, traditional Adventism as a whole, even in a private conference with men and women of judicious temperament and great experience, Prescott didn't name Smith's book as his target, because to criticize that book was ministry suicide in many parts of the church. Now back to the Trinity issue, there was a clear divide between attendees on the subject. Lacey noted that as a teacher, he gets that question, that Trinity question about the nature of Christ every year in two different classes, and that he stands firm that Jesus has always existed. Of course, many Adventists believe Jesus was divine, but not eternal. That is, Jesus was created at some point. So they would call him God, or they would call him divine, all of those sort of things. But where they differed from most Christians was they didn't believe he was eternal. They believed that he was created, and therefore that best explained to them these texts that talk about Jesus' subordination to the Father. You know, these texts where it seems like Jesus isn't quite equal with the Father in every way. Anyways, it's easy to get frustrated when discussing in Trinity because the Bible just gives you so little information. So to make sense of it all, people tend to build these intricate theological and philosophical categories, talking about the eternal generation of the Son and all of that. Even Prescott, who had no problem throwing around Greek and Hebrew words at the conference, found himself stumbling through the thick bocage of language to describe the nature of God. He was firmly Trinitarian, but he hadn't yet found a way to harmonize all of the texts on the subject, especially to harmonize them in a way that might tempt conservatives on the issue to convert to his Trinitarianism. Frustrated, one of the teachers said that students at one Adventist school are told that Jesus has existed forever, and then they go to another Adventist school and are told that Jesus was created. So, hey, can we please just take a position on this one? So that's when Daniel stepped in. Quote, now let's not get a bit nervous or scared. Don't let the conservatives think that something is going to happen and the progressive get alarmed for fear it won't happen. End quote. I love that quote. Sensing that this could go on forever, Daniels told delegates to study it some more and let's move on. But before we move on, you and I, I'll say that Prescott's morning lectures on Jesus at the conference were eventually the foundation for his two-volume book, The Doctrine of Christ, which you can find online. He published that book to be a textbook and maybe create some harmony among our schools on the subject. But curiously, the book never mentions the Trinity at all. And that should give us some indication of how controversial that idea was outside of the enclave there in Washington, D.C., which was the 1919 Bible Conference. But out in the real world with the Adventists in the pew, uh, that was an explosive topic. Nevertheless, conservatives found reason to oppose Prescott's book, mainly because of his position on the daily 
Now, we're going to talk about the daily controversy at the 1919 Bible Conference next time. I didn't want to cram all of these juicy discussions into this one episode because it would be an hour long. So let's just pause here and follow Daniel's advice to move on. But before we move on, I want to explain why we're covering the 1919 Bible Conference in such detail. Because sometimes we have episodes that cover years of history at a time, and sometimes we have episodes like this one that just cover a few days. Well, we're taking our time because the conference was important, but also because it's still important. At the end of the conference, Daniel said, quote, 15 years ago, we could not have talked about what we are talking about here today. It would not have been safe, end quote. It would not have been safe. What a curious choice of language. The crisis of confidence that Adventism found itself in, in the aftermath of Ellen White's death, is something Adventists can still relate to today. The conversation at the 1919 Bible Conference is, is a conversation Adventists are still having today, in large part, over Bible translations or whatever. Sometimes James White and Joseph Bates seem like legendary figures, or they're these heroes of the past. But Debates over evolution, Bible translations, and things like that, well, that seems very familiar, very relevant to Adventism today. In many ways, the year surrounding the 1919 Bible Conference represents a sort of refounding of modern Adventism, or maybe you could say it's a, a renovation that transformed large sections of our 19th century culture that we were born into as Adventists into a 20th century culture, at least give us the, the trappings of that. And it's a renovation, again, happening in the early 21st century. So, yeah, let's keep talking about that. I'll see you next time. This episode of the Avenus History Podcast is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music, reviews, videos, and more. To check them out, go to thehaystack.org. The Haystack, life, culture, theology, and wham. But I also have a cool other thing to talk to you about. One of our podcasting partners is launching something new, and it's really exciting to tell you about it. So do you want to know what's going on in the Adventist Church but only have like five minutes? Well, that's where The Scratch comes in. The Scratch is an Adventist news aggregator condensing broad news down into like a, a briefing that is delivered into your inbox every single week. Now, the team behind the Scratch has developed a new, more efficient way for Adventists from all generations to engage with their denomination. But they need your help. In order to fund this endeavor, they are raising $12,000 by July 9th through Kickstarter. So if you believe that news should be accessible and easy to understand, if you've ever felt like there's just so much Adventist discussion out there on the interwebs and it's hard to kind of bring it all in and keep up with what's going on around the world, then The Scratch is for you. Consider supporting The Scratch by going to www.thescratchnews.com. That's www.thescratchnews.com. Thanks for listening. Go check out our sponsors, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or 
by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So, if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.